We exist here at Outer West Community Church to draw people closer to Jesus and to each other. If you're watching us online, thanks for being here as well. I'm excited as we dive into the second part of the series that we started last week called To My Friend Who Left the Faith. And this will be kind of part two to last week's uh, message. Most of you guys know this, but my wife and I recently, uh, we graduated from being parents of two kids. We upgraded to three kids. And um, here's one of the things that I've always heard about being a parent of three kids that I now have come to know to be true. When you're a parent of two kids, you're a parent of two kids. When you're a parent of three kids, you immediately graduate to being a referee in the house. So like in our house right now, we got one kid that's laying on the floor crying, asking for milk. The other one is eating a crayon, and I'm saying, don't eat that crayon. The other one's pulling my dog's tail while she's sleeping. It's kind of chaotic in our house. And it's even more chaotic because we have three kids under four. So, and then we have a dog. So three kids under four plus a dog, it's like we have a mini zoo in our house. So you guys might walk into our house one day, it's oftentimes messy, and then you might step on a half-eaten piece of granola bar, or it might be doo-doo. It could be either one. <laughs> Sometimes I'm looking down the hall saying, I really hope that's a piece of granola bar. It's a little chaotic in the house. And uh, one of the things that uh, is fun about this age that my kids are in, they're in the toddler age, is that kids are super honest with you, right? You guys know this if you're parents. There's something about being super young and super old that makes you really honest. Like you have no filter, you don't care what anyone thinks, you just say it like it is. I'll, I'll hit the old part first. I talked to my grandmother last year. She passed away uh, late last year, but earlier in the year I was talking to her and we were FaceTiming. And she's in her late 80s and we're FaceTiming and the this is one of the first times she's seen me because the internet in India is not that great. And so she looks at me and she says, you're not as handsome as you used to be. <laughs> and I know she's not lying or joking, she's being brutally honest. That's what old people do. But my daughter, she's two and a half. She's also brutally honest. And so the other day I picked her up. I'm holding her. And she says, Dada, are you okay? You have a boo-boo on your face. And I'm going, what are you talking about? I don't have a boo-boo. And she was pointing at the pimple that I thought no one would notice. And she pointed it out. Well, kids are great. I love this stage of life that we're in with our kids. I love my kids. I look forward to going home and spending time with my kids. The hardest thing about having a bunch of toddlers in your house it's really hard to get them to understand that you might know better than them. That's one of the hardest things about having kids. So Maddie, for example, uh, she's having um, kind of an addiction to sucking her thumb right now. Um, and um, we're pretty cool parents. We're, we're relaxed. You know, if, she, if you need to suck your thumb while you're in bed or you're scared or soothing yourself, it's all good. She's just two and a half. But she started to cross over into being, like, really addicted to it. So she'll be in the sandbox and she's playing with her toys with one arm and sucking her thumb with the other arm. It's, you've officially crossed the line. So what we'll do is we'll take her out of the sandbox and say that you cannot play anymore if you keep sucking your thumb. So we'll take her out and say you can't play again until you stop sucking your thumb. And then she'll convulse and throw herself on the ground and start screaming and crying. It's a whole thing. And then I try to reason with her. I'm trying to explain to her why she should not suck her thumb. Like, hey, remember we went to the dentist? And he said, if you keep doing it, your teeth are going to shift. And trust me, I know some people that are still in their 20s and suck their thumb. I don't want you to be like one of them. So I'm trying to reason with her why she should stop, but she doesn't get it. Now imagine my daughter looks at me and says, Dada, you're not a good dad because you won't let me suck my thumb. And not only are you not a good dad because you won't let me suck my thumb, but you're not a dad at all. This is what we oftentimes do with God. God, if you were good, 
You would not let this happen. And so if Maddie were to say that to me, you're not a good dad unless you let me suck my thumb, she will be saying that she knows for a fact that there are no good reasons that I'm not letting her suck her thumb. And when we say, God, I don't believe in you because a good God would not allow these things to happen in life, what we're saying is that we know for a fact that there are no good reasons why a specific thing might happen. That we know beyond the shadow of a doubt that there are no good reasons why something might happen in the world like unmet expectations or loss or suffering. Let me give you another illustration to help bring this into perspective. This is from Alvin Plantinga, and he's a uh, professor at the University of Notre Dame in philosophy. And here's how he says this. So imagine Crystal and I, we have a dog. We adopted her from the Animal Defense League years ago. And here's one of the things that we've come to know about our dog, Bailey. She is an escape artist. Like there's an art to what she does. She, we've seen her stand up and like pull down the door level to get out. And so she's the master at this. We've seen her do it over and over again. I've had to like fortify my entire backyard to keep her inside. And um, imagine I go to my backyard one day looking for Bailey because I haven't heard her in a while. And I go out there and I look for her. And I don't see Bailey, my dog, in my backyard. It will be reasonable for me to assume, based on previous experiences with her and based on the fact that she's a 55-pound dog that I can't see, it would be reasonable enough for me to assume that my dog is not in my backyard. In other words, what he's saying is sometimes reasons are very clear. You see something and you know why it happened. Sometimes life is linear. You have answers to some of the questions that you have. So I can go back there and assume my dog's not here because I don't see her. Now, he says this, imagine you go back into your backyard and you look for a noseum. You guys know what a noseum is? It's like one of the smallest insects in existence. It's about a millimeter in length. They're called noseums because you can't see them. And so imagine I go to my backyard and I look for a noseum. It would not be reasonable for me to say that there is not a noseum in my backyard. And so sometimes when we don't have the answers that we're looking for in front of us, sometimes it's difficult for us to grasp that there might be a reason for some of the things that happen in this world. And the assumption that we oftentimes make is that if there were good reasons for unmet expectations, suffering, loss in the world, then our minds will be able to access those good reasons. Here's how Tim Keller puts it. He says this, if you've got an infinite God big enough to be mad at for the suffering in the world, then you also have an infinite God big enough to have reasons for it that you and I can't think of. And I want you to hear my heart when I share this. I'm not saying, hey, you guys have some doubts. Stop doubting. Move on. God's big. You're small. You can't comprehend it. Move on with your life. That's not the heart behind this message. But last week we talked about how Jesus, he meets Thomas in the middle of his doubts. And he shows him his scars on his hand and the wounds in his side. But here's a question that oftentimes comes up for you and I after the fact. God, how do I believe in you when I continue to have doubts? And I'm pivoting a little bit about what I was going to talk about today because this past week, I put these cards together. There's hundreds and hundreds of cards with doubts that you guys have named, and I began to pray over these and pray over our church and some of the things that you guys might be going through. And 
Here's one of the first things that we have to understand when it comes to processing our doubts and our questions with God. You and I won't always have answers to all the questions that we ask on this side of eternity. It's just a fundamental thing that we have to come to grips with. I talked about Ezra last week and my son with uh, uh, Down syndrome. And here's the thing. I don't know why Ezra has Down syndrome. Now, I could get all theological on you and say it's because of a sinful world and a broken humanity and it's a result of that. I could say that. Or I could be scientific and say, you know what, the life being formed in the womb is so delicate and intricate and um, th there's bound to be some things that go different directions and so you just happen to be one of those people that happen to go that route. Or I could even say, uh, listen to some of the people around me that say, you know what, you and Crystal have Ezra because you guys are the best people for the job. And by the way, if parents are going through something with their kids, don't tell them they're the best for the job. It's an easy way to separate yourself from them. But let's say I believe that I might say, you know what, I'm not sure. I think there might be some people that are worse than us and then some people that might be better. At it. Like, I, I don't have a clear answer as to why God placed Ezra in my life, and I'm okay with that. But I do recognize that I have been called to steward what God has placed in my life and in my hands. And I share that because what I just did right there with you is one of the most important things that you and I can do when it comes to our walk with God and our relationship with God. And it's this, being honest with God. God, I don't know. Help me be okay with it. God, I don't understand. That honesty... God honors honest doubters. He honors honest doubts that we have. There's a difference between dishonest doubters and honest doubters. And here's the difference. Dishonest doubters might say something like this. There was a famous author named Aldous Huxley, and he once confessed and said this, that he wanted to doubt that God existed because if God didn't exist, it meant that he could go and sleep with whoever he wanted. So he was doubting for the purpose of living his own life, making up his own rules. So dishonest doubt is really a form of unbelief. You're not really trying to find God or answers to life. You're simply trying to be your own God. Dishonest doubt actually destroys our relationship with God. But I have a feeling that most of us are honest doubters. Most of us are simply asking God, God, I don't understand how and why this would happen. I can't wrap my mind around it. It's an honest doubt. God honors honest doubters. I love the story where we see this in the book of Mark chapter 9. This father, his child is dealing with demons, and he brings them to different people, and they can't help him, and he's at the end of his ropes, and he comes to Jesus hoping that Jesus can do something about his child. And here's what he says, Mark chapter 9, verse 22 says this to Jesus, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. I love what he says. God, I believe, but help my unbelief. God, I'm trying, but I still got some doubts and some questions. Jesus doesn't look at him and say, get away from me, you unrighteous, skeptic, unbelieving person. My kingdom is reserved for those with the greatest faith. He doesn't do any of that. What does he do? He heals the man's son. With his doubts, he heals the man's son. God honors honesty because when we're honest 
with ourselves and with him, we realize that the only thing that saves us is not our good works or our great faith. It's the generosity of God towards us. That's what honesty does. It puts us in that type of place. It's what it means to be the poor in spirit, like Jesus said. So if dishonest doubts destroy our relationship with God, honest doubts, when brought to God within a community of faith, can transform our relationship with God. still hard for some of us to grasp this. Because psychology and theology are not enough. When my sister's, when my friend's sister is a heroin addict, psychology and theology are not enough when your husband's an alcoholic. So this is really difficult for us to grasp sometimes. And I get it. And here's what I can tell you. God has given us at our disposal one of the most powerful tools that you and I have when it comes to our doubts and our questions. And that tool is prayer. Being able to bring these things to God. Last week at our Good Friday service, we read the scripture where we talked about, where it talks about Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, denying him over and over again. And so Peter tells Jesus, God, I'll die for you. I'll do anything for you. And Jesus says, hold up. Before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. But I, what I love about this passage is that not only does Jesus predict Peter's denial, Jesus also knows exactly what Peter needs after the denial. Here's what happens right before that. Luke chapter 22, verse 31. He says this, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as we. 2231, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you like wheat. He's saying, Peter, I know what's coming ahead. The enemy is trying to separate you from me. It was his plan back then, and it's his plan for us today to separate us from our Creator, from Jesus. He says, He's trying to separate you, Peter. And here's what I'm going to do for you, verse 32. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. This is so profound for me because, look, Jesus knew what was coming up ahead. Jesus could have said, listen, Peter, I know what's coming up ahead for you. Satan's trying to separate you. So when they take me into the temple courts and arrest me, get away from them. Because there's going to be some people that look at you and say, aren't you the man that was with him and accused you and then you're going to deny me? So let me save you from all that. Just go hide for a while. I'm going to go and be crucified on the cross and resurrect. And after I resurrect, I'll come back and meet up with you. Jesus doesn't do any of that. He says, Peter, Satan is going to test you. He's trying to separate you from me, but I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. Jesus could have stopped the plans of the enemy for Peter's life, but he's, he doesn't because he's perfectly submitted to the Father's will. The goal was not the removal of the temptation for Peter. The goal was not the removal of the shame and pain and guilt that Peter might feel because he gives into the denial of Jesus. The goal was that Peter's faith would not fail in the midst of it. That's why Jesus prays, I will pray that your faith would not fail, and that out of the fire you would turn back and strengthen the people around you. 
And here's one of the most beautiful things about prayer that Jesus teaches us here. Prayer is multifaceted. Sometimes one of the aspects of prayer that we forget about is that prayer is not just for the removal of an obstacle. Prayer helps produce perseverance to push through the obstacles, to get through it. It produces something in us that we can only accomplish through God's grace and strength that allows us to get through it. So for some of us who are wondering, God, why are you not doing this in my daughter's life? Why are you not doing this in my son's life? Dallas Willard says it this way. He says that God has given us power over some things, but not over other things. And worship team, you guys can come on up as I get ready to wrap up. He says this, um, for example, I recently started gardening in my backyard, just planting some flowers, and some of them are starting to die already, so if you guys can help me with that, just let me know if you're into gardening. But he says this, if I see a weed come out of my flower bed, I have the power to go and take that weed out, to remove that problem. I don't have to ask God for permission. He's already given me permission to take care of the land that he's placed me in. I simply go and remove that weed. But God has not given me power to remove my friend's sister's heroin addiction. I don't have power to pluck her out of that, to pull her out of that. And this is the balance of life. This is where we find some of the difficulties and doubts and questions come up. And oftentimes, our response to that lack of control and power that we have is to doubt God. But here's the thing. It will be dangerous if all of us had full control and power over everything that we want to accomplish. That all of our prayers would instantaneously come through. It would have been dangerous when the disciples, they told Jesus about the Samaritans. Do you want us to pray so that fire would come down from heaven and destroy these people? It's dangerous. I don't want that kind of control. Like, if there's a kid that picks on my son Ezra on the playground, I can pray some dangerous, creative prayers right there. <laughs> I don't want that kind of power. I don't want that kind of control. So prayer is not about me wishing diarrhea on that kid. <laughs> prayer brings us to a point where we can be stable in the midst of the realities of life. Say, God, I surrender to your will. And so this, these doubts that some of you have written out, and some of you maybe didn't write it, but you're thinking it and feeling it, is bringing our lack to God. It's coming to God with an awareness that we may not always have full control, but knowing in faith that God will meet us there. And in faith, knowing that God will provide us the strength to push through the fire. To say that my doubts may still be there, but my doubts are not stronger than my faith in a God who I have experienced and seen to be faithful. That's all this is. And it's a part of the journey of life that we're in. Some of us, we've got to take that step of faith to choose to say, God, despite this, I trust in you. It's why I think Jesus, we talked about Thomas last week and how he reveals himself to Thomas in a personal and an intimate way. But then you may have noticed that Jesus says, 
Stop doubting and believing. And then he ends with this, John chapter 20, verse 29. Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So look what Jesus is showing us here. Belief in God is possible without seeing. Let me make it a little bit more practical. Belief in God is possible without having all the answers. Belief is not the absence of doubt. Belief at times is saying, I choose trust that exceeds my doubts, my questions. That's what it means to follow God at times, to choose to trust him despite our doubts. Not only is belief possible without seeing, Jesus says, blessed are you if you believe without seeing. God, I don't understand what's happening in my life, but I choose to believe that you are God and that you are a good God. And what it says about you in your word that you are faithful to the end is true. It's one of the reasons we have this up on the wall, everything will be okay. Not because everything is okay in the world, but everything will be okay, whether it's today, tomorrow, or the day that I'm in God's presence forever. I will choose to believe that everything will be okay because he says that one day God will work, God will work all things out together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's what true faith is, choosing to say God will despite what we can see with our eyes. I want to invite you to stand as I get ready to wrap up. Here's the last thing that I want to say to you. And as I prayed over these this week, it was a little heavy knowing that there's so many doubts, so many people doubting. I was telling God, am I doing the right thing? Am I preaching the right stuff? There's so many doubts. But here's what God reminded me this week. You and I are the people of God despite our doubts and questions. And God loves you and trusts you despite your doubts and questions. Look at this last instance. Jesus shows up to his disciples on the mount. It's the 40th day after his resurrection. He's already shown himself to them multiple times. Here's what it says. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him... They worshipped him, but some doubted. They had already seen him. This is after the Thomas event. The 500 had seen him. They had seen the nail-pierced hands and the wounds in his side, the scars of his resurrection. They worshipped him, but some doubted him. And Jesus doesn't draw a line in the sand and say, if you're a doubter over here, if you believe over here. He tells all of them collectively comes to them and says this, verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, all of you, I am with you always to the very end of the age. No shame, no guilt. He knows this is a part of what it means to follow him. Yet he gives them the greatest commandment, his mandate for you and I, the great commission. 
God will use you despite your doubts at times and despite your questions if you choose to believe in him because, again, it's never been about your great faith and your good works. It's always been about his generosity to you. And you belong at the table of Jesus, not because you've earned it, but because he's died for you on that cross. And you've done nothing to earn it. For some of you need to know, despite some of the questions you have, God has called you to be his witnesses wherever it is that he's placed you. Faith is saying that everything will be okay despite what you and I can see with our eyes. I want to pray for us this morning. If you're still wrestling with this, you still feel like you have some things, if you don't have any doubts right now, just give it a few weeks or months, it'll come right back up. This is the ebb and flow of following God. The reminder is to choose to believe. And so I'm going to pray for us this morning, and I want to pray over you, church. I want to invite you to just open your hands. This is a posture of receiving something. Would you open your hands to receive from God this morning? Just like Jesus extends his hands towards Thomas, and Thomas receives the resurrected Christ, the same promise is there for you and I. God, we thank you for your people that are gathered this morning. You know exactly what it is they're going through, God, this morning. Some are here, their faith is at a 10 out of 10. Some are here, their faith is at a 1 out of 10. It's the beauty of following you. And you look at each and every one of us. Say, go and be my disciples. God, would you meet your people in their doubts and their questions this morning? whatever it is that they're going through. And would they experience your spirit this week, the calming of your spirit this week, the joy that comes from your spirit this week, the strength that comes through prayer and approaching you honestly this week. Would they, able to say, would they be able to say that despite what I see with my eyes, I have experienced the goodness of God. I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We thank you for your love. We thank you that you call us, despite our brokenness, to continue to follow you. So in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen book of Hebrews starts off and says this, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. That's what faith is. That's part of this journey. And I love the second verse there. This is what the ancients were commended for. We stand here because there have been people for centuries that chose to believe despite what they were able to see. And so one of our core beliefs here is the Apostles' Creed, and I want us to read that together in a moment. The Apostles' Creed was established in 220 A.D. And centuries and centuries ago, Christians recited this because there were attacks against the doctrine and core beliefs of Christianity. And they recited it as a sign and symbol of unity as a community and belief in Jesus, the resurrected Christ. And this morning, we recite it in an age of doubt and skepticism. 
We recite it to say that we believe despite what we can see. Let's read this together. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting.